and welcome to the Department of Metal Antiquities. Where we remember what everyone else has forgotten. As always, it is Nick Cameron of Glacial Musical, joined by my good friend and musical all-star, Duncan Evans. How are we doing today? Hey, 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 I'm doing well. Thank you very much. Um, it's quite busy at the moment. I've got a recording session tomorrow and I'm, I'm recording someone else. I've been doing some session guitar work for that today. All good, working in a bit of a different style, doing some kind of classical-ish stuff. Always, always like the challenge of working in different styles. And then I've got my... <clears throat> my normal working week, Tuesday to Friday, teaching music. And then straight away after work on Friday, I am dashing into a taxi and then um, to the station to get a train down to London um, for Desert Fest, which is happening this weekend, which I'm reviewing for the fantastic Ghost Cult magazine, which is edited by Keefe Keith Shackers, who has been a guest on this very podcast and also uh, does the podcast, the Glacier Musical podcast very regularly with uh, with yourself, Nick. And so I'm looking forward to that. There's some cool bands. There's um, Shellac featuring Steve Albini. And there's <clears throat> quite a lot of doom and stonery sort of bands like Witchcraft. Um, there's also some friends of mine, June. They're going to be great. They're kind of prog metal, really ace, interesting stuff. There's a band called Stoner, which is loads, a few of the guys from like Caius and a lot of those classic early 90s kind of desert rock bands. Um, all joining together, a kind of super group. So that's going to be good. Looking forward to that a lot. Um, yeah. So how's it going for you? Uh, before I get to that, that's really cool. And I'm just kind of curious, how much does it cost you to take the train to London? Okay. I've So basically, I've just booked the tickets today. So that's like just less than a week. That's like five days or whatever it is in advance. It is five days in advance. And if I book specific trains where I have to get that one, it's worked out as about £73. Well, it's exactly £73, which is like $90, I guess. Um, if if I wanted to have got the tickets where you just open-ended return, where you've got like a week window, you know, you can stay, go and stay and come back when you want within a time frame, that's like 130 pound which is like 150 dollars so i don't know how that compares i mean in american terms leeds to london is probably like really near like to us it feels kind of far it's about two hours on the train which is not very much really two um, hours on the train how fast does the train go i don't know it'd be about it'd be under 200 miles an hour because they don't they don't i know they don't go it'd be like probably about 100 miles an hour i think so it's even faster than our trains because our trains only go 75 Okay, no, no, ours go faster than that. We don't have what they call high speed. I think the high speed rail that they're talking about maybe putting in is about 200, but I think they're about 100 miles an hour. Uh, China now has a train that goes 375. Wow, that's crazy, man. Yeah. It is crazy. I, I'm now to, to compare, I can take a train to Chicago, which is about 270 miles, six hours on the train, five hours by car for about $25 each way. Whoa, that's, yeah, that's that's pretty good, man. That's pretty good. But I guess it's just people have to travel further all the time, so it works, economically it works, whereas here it just wouldn't. Well, they're, when they were talking about putting in the high-speed uh, high train going between St. Louis and Chicago, I assume they meant like a 200-mile train, 200-mile-per-hour train, and mm -hmm. I thought, wow, I could get a job in Chicago and take yeah. the train every day. Yeah. Uh, the yeah. high-speed train has now, they put it in and it's done and it shaved off, I think, 20 minutes off the <laughs> so, Wow, nice. But as for me, I am doing really well. 
considering the news I'm about to say, I tested positive for COVID this week. Uh-uh. On Thursday, we found out about an outbreak at my, my kid's school and we ended up, I ended up leaving work to go get, get the kid tested because she had tickets to see Hamilton that night. Mm-hmm. So we had to get everything cool, tested. But it's a shame. I'm guessing she couldn't go. Uh, she came, well, the show was canceled anyway. Okay. So, but it, it gets better. The, the Hamilton part of the story gets even better. I'll, I'll get to that in okay. a second too. So she came up negative. I came up positive. We're quarantining. Everything's fine. Nobody has symptoms. Uh, I am not resting as much as I should because we've still got tons of work to do. But so I work and I feel bad and then I rest and then I feel good and then I work and I feel bad because I'm an idiot. I won't just sit down and say, no, I'm not doing that. I have COVID, but everything's fine. I'm working from home. So no, there will be no serious ramifications in a week. But uh, because the daughter had a ticket to, to see Hamilton, this week, my wife put in for the lottery. The lottery right. is you put in your name and if they choose you, you get to buy really cheap tickets. Okay, so she, she and she so won. Your daughter already had the tickets, and then your wife we, put the lottery in after. Right for for me and the wife to go. See if you could go as well. We didn't I have see. tickets, uh-huh. so because the kid didn't see it. We um, we won, and I can't go. Oh no! Because there's only two tickets. Ah. Oh, wow. So I, you know, and I'm like, don't worry about it. It's fine. Hamilton's not going anywhere. I'm not a big fan like you two are. You guys go have fun. And it's not like it's Book of Mormon. There are other plays where I would say, no, the kid's not going. Although the kid would not go to Book of Mormon. Yeah. Because that would be wrong. And probably my wife wouldn't go either. So that's not the point. But, yeah, you know, having said all that, uh, I am uh double vac uh double vaxxed and boosted and i have been pretty careful and i thought i was going to dodge the bullet the whole way through either you know didn't Mm -hmm. i caught it um but because i am vaccinated i'm fine i I am fine i've not had a fever i've not lost taste or smell and i have not even been stuffy or sniffly or anything so that's pretty much as good as it goes well yeah as long as you don't pass it down the uh wi-fi network to me nick um yeah i'm hoping i don't get covid before desert fest but you know and and the thing is is you just don't know and i might have gotten it through my kids school i might have gotten it at some time when we were out i might have gotten it when we got dinner at some point i don't know exactly but just be careful and um, definitely, in my opinion, you should be vaccinated. But oh, now, that the, sure, now that the PSA is over, we are talking about uh, a super group today, a super group featuring X-Men, all kinds of X-Men. Well, X-Men and the opposite, like um, what's the opposite of X-Members of a band, like previous members that went on to be members of bigger bands and stuff are we talking about tony franklin again no we're not talking about tony <laughs> franklin but yeah but there's a bit of that going on so um okay well look let's just say it so this is badlands um the debut album self-titled called badlands 
from 1989. And yeah, this is kind of an all-star cast, really. Um, but again, there's always the one guy that's not really um, in, in in many other bands. Um, in, in this case, it's the bassist Greg Chasson, who I don't think many people probably would have heard of. Um, and I don't think he's been in many other big bands. However, he wasn't was a band called. Oh, God, I saw it. Now I don't remember. I mean, oh. it says here he's been in like 50 bands, but none of them I've heard of apart from Badlands. So he's not been in any major, big, huge bands like Steeler. There's here Steeler, Helion, oh, Legs Bad, Diamond. Badlands was his first album. Well, there you go then. So again, he was the guy that went on to a few other bands after this, um, but even then, no massive ones. Um, Correct. But this is Ray Gillen, um, who was the singer who had. Um, OK, so so what had he done? So basically he'd been he was a member of Bobby Rondinelli's band for a while in like 1985 or something. Then somehow he became the singer for Black Sabbath for like no albums. He recorded and he recorded, I think, the Eternal Idol Correct. with Black Sabbath, and then they re-recorded it with Tony Martin. And then Tony and, Martin sang the exact same vocals. Yeah, ex exactly. Note for note. Yeah, and um, but basically, yeah, he he did a few shows, I believe, with Black Sabbath, but then he just... he joined once Glenn Hughes was fired. That's it. I believe Ray Gillen was the guy who was on hand in case. Glenn Hughes lost the plot and his drug addiction spiraled out of control. And then what actually happened, it became a self-fulfilling prophecy because when Glenn Hughes found out that Ray Gillen was on hand and that they had someone, he then I think kind of stormed out and then quit slash got fired. No, he was okay. According to his book, he, in, in Glenn Hughes is not shy about talking about how terrible of a human being he was for, a long time until he got clean because he mm -hmm. ruined everything he touched because of his cocaine addiction. He ruined trapeze. Yep. He ruined the trapeze reunion tour. He ruined everything because he couldn't stop. He couldn't stop with the booger sugar and he has gotten clean and taken care of himself and I'm, you know, more power to him. But at this time he couldn't. And as we discussed in one of the Tony Martin black Sabbath episodes, he was wasn't fired by Tony Iommi. He was okay. fired by Eric Singer. Ah, uh, yes, right. So Tony has fired every singer that's come through the doors, and never told a single one of them. Right, I see. So he's not the guy that delivers the news, basically. No, he made uh, Bill Ward deliver the news to Ozzy. Oh, and right. He made wow. Eric Singer deliver the news to Glenn Hughes. I believe Dio quit of his own accord every yes, time. Yes, I think that's right. Because that's just, just the kind of person that Ronnie James Dio was. He mm -hmm. sees that things are because he, I mean, that's he's a man that climbed the mount climbed to the top of the mountain in like five different acts. So man on the silver mountain. Yes, he climbed the silver mountain and he just he he got up to the top of it every time. So for him, a band is just a vehicle for that week, I would assume. I yeah, mean, I don't sure, know for sure. sure. I haven't I read his book yet, but sure. yeah, so he was fired and then Ray Gillen comes on hand and then Ray Gillen records the eternal idol and then finds out through Sharon Osbourne, he's been fired. Yeah. Apparently he found out through his, um, 
I think, oh, no, no, that's right. No, you're absolutely right. The Sharon Osbourne thing. Um, he found out through Sharon Osbourne. Wait, really? no, I'm sorry. I, I got him confused. Yeah, that's that Jakey Lee. That yeah, was we'll Jakey Lee. I apologize. Yeah, yeah, we haven't yeah. gotten there yet. Yeah, that's fine. Well, we can get there now. So Jakey Lee was the guitarist for Ozzy for... Um, Oh, what's the big album? I can't remember the name of it now. He did uh, Bark at the Moon and the Ultimate... Not the Ultimate Sim. Ultimate, um, it was the Ultimate Sim, wasn't it? Yes, it was the Ultimate Sim. Yeah, Ultimate Sim. Yeah, exactly. My um, two least favorite classy Ozzy Osbourne records for the record. Sure, sure. But then, yeah, he found out through his flatmate, who was also the guitar tech, and then he rang uh, um, Sharon and said, is this true? Am I fired? And then she said, yes, see you later, sort of thing. Um... So at that point, now at some point, I think, does Eric Singer leave Black Sabbath? Is that what happens? I was under the impression that Eric Singer was fired from Black Sabbath because Tony, the, the Eternal Idol record, and let me check real quick. So basically, Eternal Idol was done with basically the touring band from the Seventh Star. So you had Tony, yeah. you had Eric, and Bob Daisley played bass on this. I believe he was on the tour because mm -hmm. I don't believe Dave Spitz was on the tour, and I can't find the, the any good information. But and then after that, they went into Headless Cross, which I believe brought Cozy Powell back into the fold. And yeah. uh, Tony was a big fan of Cozy Powell, who did the next couple records, and until uh, Dio came back in because Dio didn't want to work with Cozy Powell again. Oh, wow. Is that right? Because they used he, to work together in Rainbow. Correct. They were they worked together in Rainbow. And he, Dio's like, no, get Vinny back. So right. Vinny Apsi okay. came back. So this so is- Eric, this So is Eric Singer left <laughs> the, let, sorry, Eric Singer left Sabbath then basically to go off uh, with Bob Daisley and Gary Moore's band. Is that right? That's the way I would understand it. And, yeah. and then- he circles back to Ray Gillen, who Ray Gillen's parts on Eternal Idol are completely done. You can hear them. There was a 2010 re-release of that album mm -hmm. with Ray Gillen on vocals. And actually, I had pitched to Duncan an episode on those that release because I was interested in hearing the differences between the Tony Martin and the Ray Gillen versions. And then I listened to the Ray Gillen album and I said, no, this is completely pointless. It sounds exactly the same. <laughs> he, you know, yeah. Tony Martin just came in, copied it note for note. So the way I understand that story is the album was done. And then they brought in Tony to quickly do the vocals to go on tour. Yes. So it's just, it, this is another one of those, we, the, the Black Sabbath Ozzy Osbourne camp I guess the Black Sabbath camp, I guess I should say. Yeah. The Black Sabbath camp family tree of bands is extraordinarily incestuous. Uh -huh. these, these guys are swapping members out to each other constantly. Exactly. So, yeah. So then at this point, I think Ray Gillen gave Jake E. Lee a call knowing that he'd been fired from Ozzy's band and said, do you want to do a thing, basically? Um, having already got Eric Singer on board, I believe. And as um, Eric Singer once put it about himself, drummer for hire has sticks, will travel. Right, right. 
Yeah, so they did. And um, they somehow found uh, the bass player, Greg, Greg Chasson. Uh, Chasson um, was found by Jake. Jakey Lee knew him from the Ozzy Osbourne auditions. Right, I see. So there you go. So he knew this guy, said, I remember him. He was pretty good. Let's give him a call. Right. Yeah, so then you have this new kind of super group of sorts called... Badlands. I guess before we talk about Badlands, we should just also say that um, some of these guys then went on to do other stuff. So Eric Singer then went on and joined Kiss in 1991. Before that, that, after he was fired from Badlands, he joined Paul Stanley's solo band. Paul Stanley did a tour in 1989. It was a club tour where he went and played all of his favorite songs from the Kiss years and his solo album and a song that ended up becoming, ended up being on the next Kiss record, Hot in the Shade, which was called Hide Your Heart, uh, a song Ace Fraley also released in 1989 and Bonnie Tyler also released in 1988. That song was released by about five different people. And it's it's not that good if you ask me, but that's besides (laughs) the point. So yeah, he goes on to Paul Stanley's solo band and According to Paul Stanley, I'm not going to say yes or no that this is true, but Eric Carr was very angry. Eric Carr, who at the time was the drummer from Kiss, Mm -hmm. was very upset that Paul Stanley didn't ask him to do it. And he Mm -hmm. said, that guy is going to replace me. Right. Yeah, He did. Uh, After Mm -hmm. Eric Carr uh, contracted... I'm not sure what kind of cancer it was because it ended up everywhere in his system, basically. Right. They Kiss has never been a sentimental band. And if you can't, they're like a sports team. If you can't go, they call in the next guy to do, mm-hmm. to, to do it for you. And then you come back when you come back. So mm-hmm. they brought in Eric Singer to record God Gave Rock and Roll to You 2 for the Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey soundtrack. And then, right. they, then they hired Eric Singer as a session player for the revenge album which they had to do at that moment because one they're not sentimental two they got already got paid for it and three that's when bob ezrin was available right to produce it. and right. then he joined kiss after that uh, he, yes. he was, became an official <clears throat> member uh, after eric carr had died mm-hmm. right so windy th- windy roads yeah, totally. So this this band Badlands then, so they didn't really become as big as they arguably should have done, given the members and the links to other bands and everything else. Um, I'm not sure. I'm just looking at what label they were. Yeah, Titanium slash Atlantic. So they were on a pretty big label. Um, but this album, um, it sold well. It sold four hundred thousand copies over its over its run. Now, when you say they should have been bigger based on the the star power involved, let's look at that. You have Jakey Lee, who is the third guitar player officially to be released on album from Ozzy. And I don't think many people thought of that band as a band. Yeah. They're the ones that wrote it. You have Ray Gillen, who at this point in time had never been on anything released by Black Sabbath. Yeah, true. And then and Eric, Eric Singer wasn't yet in Kiss, so he wasn't as massive a name. So well, he yeah. had been with Lita Ford and Black Sabbath at this point. Mm, but, but the you kind know, of the not proper lineup of Black Sabbath, let's face it. Or the not and the not proper lineup of Lita Ford. If yeah. there if there even is one, frankly. Yeah. So you have these guys that 
they're, they've all got strong career pedigrees. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. they're not famous in their own right. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. So, but yeah, 400,000 copies, which is plenty, but it doesn't feel like loads. Well, um, what did, you know. like, what did the Ultimate Sin sell? I'm sure that sold... Oh, surely quite a lot more than that. I mean, I could be wrong, but um, I am looking it up as we speak. So let's see here. Uh, the Ultimate Sin, Ozzy Osbourne, which was his second record released in 1980s. I'm sorry, Jakey e. Lee's second record with yeah. Ozzy in 1986. Uh, 30 on the Billboard chart. Uh, one, no top 10 singles, top, uh, top 10 mainstream rock USA. Uh, in the United States, it sold two million copies. There you go. So I guess doing as quarter, nearly a quarter as well as that isn't too bad. Um, but yeah, I'm just looking now. So the chart performance for this Badlands album, Swedish albums chart number 35, UK album chart 39, Billboard 200 in the US 57. So yeah, it it you know it made a bit of an impression, but um, didn't stick around for too long. Um, yeah, that's the thing about this album, and that's the thing about a lot of albums from this time. As somebody who grew up in the '80s and was into music in the '80s, bands mm -hmm. didn't have a whole lot of mainstream staying power. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I remember having a conversation with my dad, telling me about how Willie Nelson had been popular for 30 years. Mm -hmm. and he's like, can you name anybody that's been popular that long in the kind of music you listen to? And I thought, no, mm -hmm. a year in the, in the 80s. If you got a year as a mainstream act, that was pretty good. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's just that's yeah. just the reality of that time frame. It's music just kept yep. coming and going. And yes, it, it's not like now where it's, you know, it's not like rock now where the big acts are all the same heritage acts uh, that were big 40 years ago. Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah, man. Well, and I guess it's a bit of a sad story with what happened to Badlands. Not, I mean, for the band, sure, but even sadder, really, for uh, Ray Gillen and his family, really. So basically what happened was um, Gillen contracted AIDS at some point. Um, and of course, this was before we had the treatment that we have now so essentially what happened was there was an issue so it, th this album was produced by a guy called paul o'neill who it seems was also their manager that's what it seems to say here on wikipedia and they must they must have been thinking about firing him because this guy paul o'neill apparently said i'm gonna if you try and fire me i'm going to tell the record label that ray gillen has aids um, and then Gillen heard about this and said, well, that's not true. So let's fire Paul O'Neill. And they did fire him. And he did tell the record label that Ray Gillen had AIDS. And then they just didn't support the next album very well at all. Um, so they were kind of screwed over on that one. Um, and then I, I think the band, and then at some point Ray Gillen, oh, that's right. They had a big fall out on stage where they were arguing with each other on stage because Jakey e. Lee had done an interview for um, one of the big magazines where he was basically saying that Ray Gillen's behavior was really erratic. Ray Gillen goes on stage, holds the magazine up and says, oh, there's two sides to every story. And then Jakey e. Lee was mouthing, it's all true to the audience. And then soon after that, it all just kind of petered out. I think it gets, Ray Gillen- It gets better. 
there's yep. even more. Eric's and I read this today on sleazerocks.com while doing some research. Right. There was an interview with uh with Mr. Shason. I can't remember his first name, and I want to say Steve, but Steve Shason was a hockey player, not this guy, I don't think. But he he they did a big they they re-released Greg, the album. Greg Chason. Greg, thank you. Greg yeah. Chason. Also hockey name, but still. So he they did some re-releases and he did some interview. He did an interview thinking that everybody was going to be doing an interview. And then he claimed that all well, let me, hang on, let me roll back a little bit. At first, Eric Singer didn't like him and didn't right. even have his base in the monitor. Right. And eventually he said they became very good friends, blah, 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 yada, yada, yada. Right. And then when they're doing the re-releases of these albums, apparently. He thought everyone was doing an interview, and then, he, but he was the only one that did it. And he claims that most of what he said was fabricated and false about Eric Singer. Right. So then he tried to get back into Singer's good graces, which did not happen, and their friendship ended over that interview. Right. Wow. So there we go. I mean, this whole thing is just drama, drama, drama. Oh, totally, totally. Okay, well, look, we've talked about the drama. We've talked about the background. Um, we know that these guys were have, are kind of forgotten. Nowadays, Badlands are not generally listed as one of the big uh, rock or metal acts of the 80s. Um, so shall we get into the music? Yeah, the one thing I will say is that a lot of, before we get into the music, a lot of Kiss fans still look back fondly on this album. Right. Because of Eric Singer's involvement. And one of the things about Kiss fans in general is they're fairly completist. I had a copy of this on cassette back right. during my completest Kiss fan days where I wanted to get everything every Kiss fan, every Kiss member had done. I wanted to own yeah. everything. And I had... Crown and Glory was a Scooby-Doo, a rock and roll adventure. <laughs> I still haven't seen that on purpose. But I had, I mean, I had Vinnie Vincent albums. I had Peter Chris solo albums. I had Ace's solo albums. I had all of Bruce's work up to that point. And yes, I bought this and uh, I, uh, but I had it on cassette mm -hmm. just so I could have it. I also had the first Vinnie Vincent album on cassette and I don't believe I ever listened to either one because at that point in time, it was all about CDs and yes. the tape deck did not have auto reverse. Right. So there you go. Who wants to press rewind when you've got tracks skipping? Or, you know, you got to get up to flip a stupid thing while you're playing a video game. Well, exactly. Exactly. Okay. So should we get into the track by track then? We should. And I will also say that I only went up through seasons. I did not get to the bonus track. So... Oh, I didn't realize that was a bonus track. I just listened to it thinking it was the last track on the album, but I, I did do it so I can talk about it if, if you want, whatever. Sure, go ahead. Um, okay. I All have, right. Oh, so, and I have notes this week. You have notes. Excellent. They look very uh, impressive, very, uh, uh, very good. So let's do this. Track one, High Wire. So it starts with a nice Led Zeppelin-ish riff. Now, Led Zeppelin is something I'm going to say a lot today, probably. Um, I have a feeling this band had heard of Led Zeppelin <laughs> and they've listened to Led Zeppelin. I just have a feeling they might. I'm going to say not just not only Led Zeppelin, I'm going to be a bit more specific. The Go first on. two Led Zeppelin records. I'm going to extend that to the first three, but yeah, fine. Okay. 
you know, you're right. You're right. First three. First three. <laughs> okay. And then I think they stop. Right. Probably. Yeah. Probably. <laughs> um, okay. Look. So yeah, it's a nice Led Zeppelin riff, like a bit eightiesified. Then you've got these very Led Zeppelinish vocals and drums and bass. Again, a bit eightiesified. It's pretty good. I would say, like, at this point, I'm thinking it's just slightly too trashy glam cheese to be right up there with Zeppelin, but it is very Led Zeppelin-esque. Pretty good bluesy melodies, amazing singing. Look, he's doing a Robert Plant impression, but he's doing it great. It's really cool, really well done, acrobatic, but without being too over-the-top, ridiculous 80s. It's very bluesy, a bit... Without? Did you say without? Uh, yeah, I think it's like... um. Okay. Still, it, it, it's acrobatic, but in a, in a 70s way, it's not like ridiculous Halloween kind of. I think a lot of the 80s guys that tried to do Robert Plant took it way too far, whereas I would say this is no, this is kind of still classic. Uh, hot um, take Duncan hates Halloween, apparently. <laughs> do you know what? I don't know Halloween that much, but yeah, the bits I've heard, it's like, whoa, no, no, I'm totally with you. I, everything I've yeah. heard is crap. Yeah, this stuff I've heard is not for me. But yeah, great guitar solo, classy, bluesy, interesting. This is not just a by-the-numbers, twiddly, um, 80s hard rock solo. This is someone who really, really knows their stuff on the guitar. Um, and I, I'm kind of wondering, why on earth was Ray Gillen considered to be a good choice for Black Sabbath if this is what he sounds like? Because he just sounds like Robert Plant. But anyway, that's by the by. Maybe he, maybe he sang differently with them. But yeah, look, this is pretty cool. I would say this is a cut above most glam metal. Um, it's got a lot of the classiness of Led Zeppelin. Yeah, probably a bit too borrowed from Led Zeppelin. Um, but, you know, it's, look, it's pretty good. See, and I, I'm going to piggyback on a lot of that, and I'm going to walk away from some of it. But, okay. You know, it starts off with some big riffs. Yes. And that's, I'm sorry, I'm burping now. Big riffs. And it's huge. It's yes, it is definitely that whole lot of love that communication breakdown kind of led zeppelin stuff a little bit of you know immigrant song and then ray comes in with these extraordinarily high vocals obnoxiously high as the 80s you know in in the 2000s the heavy metal arms race was how far can we detune yeah how low can we go in the 80s the heavy metal arms race was how high can we go we saw a lot of that on the Vinnie Vincent record that we recorded, or we, the Vinnie Vincent episode we, we, we did, where it was higher and higher and higher. And I think it was C above high C, above high C, above a dog's ear. Mm -hmm. This is a little too close to that. It's not as ludicrous as that record was, but it's still a bit much. You know, you've got the blues based kind of rock chords and that's a recurring theme, I'll tell you right now. Jake does a nice big solo. It is, you know, you said it was like Led Zeppelin through an 80s filter. Completely agree. Which is why I'm like, eh. Because there's not much here that a thousand other bands didn't do just as well or better. For, yeah, you know what? I think with that first song, I kind of agree with you. But I would say these are still... Look, the thing is, man, in the 80s, it got pretty cluttered up with a lot of really sort of 15th-rate um, crap bands <clears throat> trying to sound like Led Zeppelin. And it, 
you know, it really got watered down. Whereas I would say this is like closer. This is closer this is a good classic. clone of Led Zeppelin. Yeah. Yes. But still a clone and still not as good as Led Zeppelin, basically. Correct. Yeah. And at this point in time, I didn't have all the Led Zeppelin records. So. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Okay. Well, we'll yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got some more. I don't want to do my summing up too early. So I'll save this. Stuff. So, okay. Uh, look, look tra- tra- sorry. Yeah, go on. I got it. I got. I got notes. Yeah, got cool. Notes. We can back. We can go back to the regular format now that I found a notebook in my new house. So this is yeah. This is you then. Track two. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So dreams in the dark. And here we go again with another old school chord progression that has been done a million times. And mm. this is and and I'm having you know and I mentioned him on the first one, but I'm having shades of that Vinnie Vincent record, yeah. where. The, the riffs, the melodies, the verses, the choruses are these things we've heard a squillion times. Yeah, sure. No, I, I get, I totally hear you. And then you have this giant 80s solo full of sound and fury signifying nothing. Yeah. Okay. This one was one of the singles. And I, for me, this is one of the worst songs on the album. This is, yeah, more really? bluesy hard rock. It's a bit more 80s, a bit less 70s. The chorus is like more of an emotional 80s cheese rock chorus. Yeah, this was a power ballad. Yeah. And you know, and there's what? a bunch of those here. Yeah. I don't hate this, but I just think it's very typical and generic. So, meh, skip this one. Very typical uh, and generic. There's a refrain to have today. Yes. Well, okay. Yeah. 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 Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. I think I feel like we're going to slightly disagree on this one, but yeah. Okay. Track three, Jade's song. So it comes in with an acoustic guitar arpeggio intro, or I thought it was the intro. I thought, oh, okay, this is going to be the tender ballad. Then more acoustic guitars come in. There's some really nice guitar work here, some nice acoustic lead guitar, reminiscent of Led Zeppelin three. And it turns out this is just a short instrumental, but I really like it. I think it's interesting, and I think it's... Um, they get it right. He doesn't go, you know, it's quite virtuosic, but he doesn't go stupid. It's okay. I remember there was a track. I've forgotten the album we did now because there's been a few of these. Um, there was an album. It might have been the John, the one with John Five on, where basically there was an acoustic track that was just a complete and utter excuse to show off. Like, hey, I can play really fast classical arpeggios. And you think that was stupid and pointless. I think we've had that about 10 times. Yeah, probably. This was not that. This was really cool and tasteful. And I liked it. And I thought, okay, this is, they're not just doing generic, typical 80s rock here. They're actually harking back to Led Zeppelin. Okay, more Led Zeppelin. Yeah, it's like they're a bit stuck within the brief of what Led Zeppelin did, but they're doing more of the different shades of Led Zeppelin than most of the 80s hard rock bands did. Most of the 80s hard rock bands did riff, riff, and yeah, woman, they did that but they kind of forgot about all the other cool stuff that Led Zeppelin did with the orchestration, with the Eastern influences, with the acoustic stuff, with the folk. They just didn't do that. Whereas these guys seem to be actually perceptive to that. So, you know, I I liked this one, Um, but that's just me. I'm going to go ahead and completely disagree on that. Yeah. I said Um, it was just me. (laughs) In this, in this room, it is just you. (laughs) I thought this was a completely pointless 90 second acoustic little thing it's like i've already heard white summer this isn't nearly as good it it just didn't fit for me at all fine fine 
No, I, I get it. I get it. And I don't think it is as good as White Summer, but what is really? So, But I will agree with you when you said it's not just this, you know, 90 second, you know, buzz bomb of look at what I can do. I can even do it on acoustic. Because as we all know, it's easier to play an electric than it is to play an acoustic, like physically easier. And most of the guys in the 80s never touched an acoustic guitar. So when you say that they brought in the acoustic stuff from Led Zeppelin, yes, they absolutely did. Poison aped Led Zeppelin as much as they were able, but they never brought in that kind of stuff. That is the kind of thing, in my opinion, that made Led Zeppelin very, very special, is that they were just as good acoustic as they were electric. And there are not many bands where you can say that. For sure, man, for sure. All right. Moving on to Winter's Call. This was a single as well, by the way. All right. Thank you for that. I can totally understand why this was a single. You know, it starts off with more of those arpeggios, which Jakey Lee loves apparently this week. Did not love them on the Ozzy Osbourne records, but that's fine. And the vocals come in very soft and very soulful and very meaningful. And then in an instant, it turns into a big, stupid power ballad. Then Jakey Lee plays this bombastic, over-the-top guitar solo, which I hated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, right. Well, you see, this is where we're going to disagree. So, yeah, starts off with the clean guitar arpeggio, a bit power ballady or rock ballady, tender vocals enter. Pretty good. I'm thinking, hmm, she's all right, but it's a bit cheesy. Then it kicks in with the hard rock riffs, and I'm like, okay, Actually, this is good. Um, I'm liking this now. I'm liking the hard rock. Um, and there's some great plantisms, plantisms from uh, Gillen. Like, yes, yeah, sure, he's just ripping off Robert Plant, but he's doing it great, um, better than most people around this era or anywhere, really. Um, I really like the fact they brought a mandolin part over the top of the hard rock. It comes in in the chorus and it's really cool. It just adds this slightly different edge, a bit like um, Copperfield Road by um, Steve Earle or something. You know, you've got the hard rock and a bit of this country folk thing coming in. And then there's some cool dark riffs that come in, which I like. And then a nice weird gothic guitar solo that merges into a kind of tech metal solo. Then another guitar solo that goes into the Lydian mode for those guitar, well, uh, music theory nerds out there. Again, I like it. I think it's great and avoids the usual trite twiddly nonsense. It's been overdone and overdone. And the weird synths that come in towards the end, I would have left them out. I think they're ill-advised synths. You know, we've had this a lot where like these rock bands suddenly go, what we really need right here is a synth sound that sounds like a duck quacking combined with an alligator and a helicopter take it off. Like, you don't need that. They Um, stole that from Pink Floyd. Right. Okay. So they've heard two bands then. That was Pink Floyd doing that on Dark Side of the Moon on the second track. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get that. Yeah, I get it. I get it. But they but when Pink Floyd did it, it was amazing. Yeah. But when everybody else does it, it's stupid. Yeah, yeah. So look, I like this one. I, I thought this was a great track. Then started off not that great and then got really great pretty quickly. So I'm into it, man. All right. Go ahead. Let's uh keep moving. Oh, is it me? Right, yeah. yeah. All right. Next, dancing on the edge. So there's these nice odd 
weird stabby prog riffs and i'm thinking this is cool man because they're doing some they're not just going right generic riff number 33 bang this is something different it reminds me of john paul jones both in led zeppelin and i know it's led zeppelin again so they're still within that uh, framework but it also reminds me of john paul jones on some of his solo albums like for example john paul jones wrote black dog like a lot of the slightly weird riffs that kind of turn themselves inside out a bit in led zeppelin they tend to be john paul jones slide guitar comes in great vocals guess what he sounds exactly like robert plant but i don't care it's great some really nice riffs catchy melodies i didn't like the solo actually this time i thought nah jake you've just you've capitulated you've acquiesced um to this um boring twiddly stuff but you know whatever but then after that some nice weird guitar parts going on in the background okay look he's not jimmy page but he's borrowing from that playbook of you know what can we do to subvert this rather than having five guitars all just going da 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 no 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 let's do some thing as well and you know it's all gonna mesh together and be like a classical orchestration i like it man i think it's good one of my favorite things about doing this podcast is listening to you sing the melodies of these songs i love that do more of it um just for me i don't care if anybody else likes it but uh for for this song yeah i think dancing on the edge is the perfect title because it starts off it's this amazing song and i am digging it i am loving it and then all of a sudden ray gillen comes in and just ruins it and i don't i haven't yet liked any of his vocals on this album and okay frankly i've never really heard ray gillen sing so like this is this this is my first date and i'm not digging it at all and then as you said jake capitulates to the twiddly widdlies just this over-the-top bombastic solo which is the kind of thing that i think it was phil collins said in 1995 regarding slang which we did an episode on check that out you know one of the things that was great about the 90s is you don't have to do the olympics on the guitar anymore and mm -hmm. jake half the time on this album is just doing that it's he's switching between tasteful solos and just bombastic stupid solos and mm -hmm. this is another one of the bombastic stupid ones and it's interesting to me how there are certain players who can go straight up twiddly widdly and i am just gonna my jaw hits the floor and i start salivating over it john five kirk hammett when those guys do it i love it i can't get enough of it just stick it right in my veins i i don't know what they're doing that makes me like it so much more than this Mm -hmm. something is happening and I, I don't know maybe they're using the right modes the right keys or they're fitting the song perfectly I, I, I don't know uh, it's also interesting you mentioned John Paul Jones because we did an episode on John Paul Jones and Diamanda Gallus which you yeah. should also check out which interestingly enough is probably one of our absolute most popular episodes and still mm -hmm. gets listened to today right wow cool Nice. Uh, but moving on, we're going to move on to Streets Cry Freedom. Oh, God. So yeah. it's, it, this is another one of those. And one this is something we have seen in a lot of the glam bands in their post-glam yeah. phase. Yes. Where they're doing these, I believe in something, and it's you should believe in something. 
but they never say what that something is so no it's open up to listener interpretation and this listener interprets this as uh you're an idiot <laughs> whatever so, you believe in we believe in it too stand up for it right and it's it's more of the slow blues that 80s blues that we have come across so many times in this series mm-hmm. and in this podcast excuse me and it's it's 80s blues it's well worn this is 1989 the clock is ticking this genre of music has about 28 minutes left on the clock before it's got a stake in the heart yeah and this is why because they are now recycling recycled riffs yeah i mean yeah i didn't hate it as much as that but yeah this is their version of stand when we did the poison album with stand on where they're like stand up for stand for what you believe exactly whatever that is whatever that is we're for it too totally abhorrent yeah exactly but yeah look so it starts off with some big dramatic riffs it breaks down to clean guitar arpeggios this is a bit of a power ballad thing tender vocals come in kicks in with slightly cheesy 80s rock and all the nonsense lyrics about freedom and yeah the streets cry freedom that's the one, yeah. But then it continues with a quite nice Bonham-esque slow stomp on the drums from Eric Singer, which I think redeems it quite a lot. And then it breaks down and kicks in with a fast and urgent riff, which is quite nice, but it does sort of feel a bit like a different song, like they just tacked them together. Then there's a nice halftime bit, which I really like, with this delay slide guitar and the tambourine comes in, which for some reason I just really liked the addition of the tambourine. Um, I think that was a first. session player, by the way. Yeah, I know, I know. Tambourine. They brought record. in a session player to play the tambourine. Now, to any of our listeners who are tambourine enthusiasts, tambourine artisans, or tambourine masters or maestros or whatever, I had no idea that you could make a living playing the tambourine. <laughs> well, there you go. There you go. This guy <laughs> did. This guy does. Apparently, yeah, I'm maracas. I'm maracas. Um, but, but yeah, but anyway, I look, I liked it. I liked the tambourine. I thought it had a groove to it, man. And, um, and then it came in with a cool bottleneck solo, which I really liked and some great plantisms for me. This one is all over the place. Like the lyrics are stupid. The title's stupid. A lot of the vocals are stupid, like faux emotional nonsense. A lot of it's totally cheesy. But it's got some of the best sections on the album. That delay slide guitar bit, like... It's cool, man. And the tambourine... I mean, you know what a tambourine sounds like, but this is just... Cool. That was, that's not what a tambourine sounded like. Okay, no, all right, no. all right, all right. I, okay. I, I want to say, because we're not doing these on video, but I was laughing so hard that my face turned <laughs> as red as my beer can. <laughs> Don't mm. you're killing me this week. <laughs> so yeah look it's kind of all over the place this one but um but it's got some of the best moments on the album so it's worth it for that all right track seven hard driver so um drum intro lots of toms quite interesting bit different um thought it could have been a drum solo track and i was going oh is it gonna be a big drum solo no kicks in with some bluesy 80s metal riffs still going at it with the tom grooves on the drums then you've got a bluesy guitar solo before the vocals. Okay, pretty good. 
Then the vocals come in and you've got these 80s pop metal riffs in the background, some nice melodies and cool arpeggios. Uh, this is where the bass started to annoy me because he's got this habit on just one or two tracks of kind of doing these, these little fills that are annoying. Yeah. And it's like, no, you didn't need to do that. Just carry the groove, man. You don't need to do that. Um, and did this bass player, by the way, later on went to do a solo album. So maybe that says something. Maybe he's with already Eric feeling, Singer like, on drums. With Eric Singer on drums, yes. Maybe he's already feeling that need to take the limelight. But yeah, strong chorus hook. Look, it's a little bit cheesy, but it's very catchy. And look, it's of its time. And yes, this whole track is very of its time. This is 80s, 80s, 80s. But I would say it beats most of the other cheese um, in the sort of hard rock, heavy metal world at that time. Really like the weird Lydian mode riff. Again, Lydian mode's come up twice that comes in. That's cool. Um, changes around a bit after that is another guitar solo, some key changes, blah, 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 blah. More silly bass twiddles, which can go away, but whatever. Then it breaks down to like some toms and plantisms. And it's, it's very much like one of the restrained calm bits from Led Zeppelin, like in Whole Lot of Love, where it all calms down before it kicks back in again. Um, yeah, look, it's not the best track in the world. It's a bit all over the place and it's a bit cheesy, but um, there's enough cool, interesting, weird, in different stuff that I like. I would say I do still like it. This actually is probably my favorite track on the record. Right. Um, I, one thing I'm going to point out, and Eric Singer, as a drummer in this day and age, takes heat from a large segment of KISS fans for not playing to his full potential. Right. Not playing with enough panache, which one has to remember what kind of drummer Eric Singer is. And I mean this in no disrespect. He is a mercenary drummer. Mm -hmm. He said it himself, have sticks, will travel. And mm -hmm. he plays to the song. He plays to the bosses. He's played with Lita Ford, Black Sabbath, Kiss, and Alice Cooper. Yeah. He has played with three of the biggest bands of the genre. For years in each one. He's been on albums for both of them. Or all three yeah. of them, excuse me. And Lita Ford. And so much more. Eric Singer has been on, I think, 200 different albums. I mean, mm -hmm. his resume mm -hmm. speaks for itself. And his drumming on this record is phenomenal. Mm -hmm. He has really crushed it. Just wanted to get that out there. Now, this one, it the for the most part, it's more of the same on this. We have this... 80s blues it's like 50s blues filtered through 60s blues filtered through 70s blues filtered through the 80s and it's just it's weird and it, it, it's so weird I, I only say that now because I've gotten into like 50s and 60s blues in the past five years mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I listen to a lot of John Lee Hooker and Tina oh yeah Ford good stuff a lot of cool stuff like that. And this, so when I listen to these guys doing those riffs, it's weird. It's, it's weird. But the bridge on this album, or as Duncan would say, the middle eight is yeah. the best moment on the whole album. It gets creepy. It gets weird. And I loved that. And that was finally heard something from this band doing something I hadn't heard. That's the Lydian mode bit. Is it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Loved it. Yeah. Cool. Nice. Now, All right. moving on to Rumbling, Rumbling Train. 
Yeah. Uh, well, apparently they felt the album wasn't long enough, so they put this on there. That's it. That's it. Okay, well, look, it's basically a blues. It's a steady halftime bluesy shuffle riff, driving bass and drums, lower vocals, sound bluesier, not so much like Robert Plant, actually. Kind of a variation on the 12 bar, some quite nice jazz chords from Lee, some nice dynamics, um, cool solo. Yeah, look, this is nothing new at all. This is just kind of, I wouldn't quite say it's blues by numbers, but it's certainly... Um, um, you wouldn't say that. It, I mean, I mean, look, they do it quite well. You're but thinking it, about is, it, though. There is nothing new whatsoever here. It is just like blues rock. That's it. It's a blues rock track. It just does what every other blues rock track does. Um, yeah, look, it's not exactly essential, but there's some quite good atmospheres on it. If you're into blues rock, then you're going to like it. If but this song wasn't on the album, would you think of the album any differently? Eh, probably not there you go yeah i know what you're saying okay well track nine the pen, well the penultimate track if we're going by the apparently original track list whereas i had i had 11 tracks on mine um didn't realize the last one i was did hear the 11th one but i wasn't paying attention so okay it's cool. i might have something to say in the end but go ahead yeah Okay, well, track nine, Devil's Stomp. So Led Zepp-3-esque acoustic guitar stuff at the start. Nice, interesting, like it. Mournful vocals come in. Then goes into a bit of 80s cheese pop. <laughs> Not so keen. Then it kicks in with a big bluesy hard rock riff, but, the, but without the drums. So it's like it teases the riff. Then they go back into a clean guitar version of the acoustic arpeggio. So they're building it up, clean electric guitars, a bit of drums, but still doing that restrained arpeggio clean thing. Eventually it kicks in with the big riff with the full band. And then it just changes gear to 80s Led Zeppelin, which let's face it, most of the album's been 80s Led Zeppelin. But you know what? Again, I think it's quite cool. I like that there's a few like celebration day references. There's some nice, interesting chords, the sort of thing that Jimmy Page would do because he knows about music theory, whereas like um, Motley Crue probably wouldn't do because they maybe don't know so much about what they're doing, um, even though they have some cool riffs. Um, catchy chorus, slightly cheesy. Nice bit with a Hammond organ towards the end. Another bluesy guitar solo. For me, this one jumps around a bit too much. It's like they had all these separate ideas and just shoved them together and jumped from one to the other. Um, but there are some cool bits on it. Not the best track, but some good bits. I like this one. Um, okay. it, it's another power ballad. I mean, they just cannot help themselves. That's like half of this record is power ballads, which I get it. I mean, I get it. There has been in the last, you know, 1989, Poison has hit the charts with like four power ballads at this point. And Def Leppard is basically the king of the power ballad, which this is uh, what, two years? This is when Hysteria was still running. I mean, yeah. Um, then Great White, Once Bitten, Twice Shy. And then I'm going to point out now, you have been, and we have both been, really on the Led Zeppelin train on this one. Yeah. Because they, they're riding that Led Zeppelin train. But as I was listening to this, what I put in my notes was, is this in the still of the night reruns? So to me, this yeah. sounds yeah. like I mean, somebody copying Led like Zeppelin, band, copying yeah. Led Zeppelin. Yes. Yeah. This is actually before that though, isn't it? Because that was like, is it? am I right? Oh, no, that was 1987. No, you're right. You're right. This is that was before this. Like, yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. 
So yeah, it's a copy of a copy, which is hysterical to me. But it's not a bad song. The lyrics, however, are stupid. And it's the the he's singing about selling one's soul to the devil to become a great musician. Well, I'm going to tell you, Ray, you went to the wrong devil. <laughs> wow. Okay. But then we we head on into seasons, and this album it's another oh I'm so mournful I'm so sad and but then it gets this great stomp led by Eric Singer, and you know it it's a great closer to this record honestly. Mm. Yeah, well, look, for me, Seasons is where they suddenly got past Led Zeppelin 3 and they checked out Houses of the Holy and uh, Physical Graffiti. Because Maybe this, that's me, why I like it so much. Yeah, because suddenly like the, the intro bit is like 10 years gone or Rain Song. You've got these clean guitar arpeggios that do that, that sort of chord sequence. Yes, mournful vocals. It, when the band kick in, they're in epic mode. It's like they're not in blues rock Led Zeppelin mode. They're in Kashmir or Rain Song um, Led Zeppelin mode. Um, and you know what? It's good. It keeps building. Some of it suddenly started to remind me of Dio. It's like, hang on, you're actually further away from the blues thing and you're almost into a kind of epic metal thing here. Um, the bridge is very much like the bridge from Kashmir. Um to be honest, I would say the chorus is a little bit second rate. It's okay, but it's like the worst part of the song, which isn't, it shouldn't be like that. But the solo's great. Um, look, it builds up even more towards the end. They're like, we're really doing the epic thing. I would say it could be cut down a bit. It's a bit overlong, and it doesn't quite live up to the epic, classic, anthemic thing that they're going for. But you know what? It's pretty damn good. Um they make a pretty decent effort at um, a rain song or a 10 years gone, gone or a Kashmir or Achilles last stand, that type of big, epic, hard rock 70s thing. Um, yeah, it's pretty good. It's, it's a pretty good closer. Um, but it's not the closer for on the version that I heard. So we have Ball and Chain which starts with like a big tremolo arm chord bending up was like... Then kicks in with, guess what? Some groovy riffs that sound a lot like Led Zeppelin. And then guess what? Ray Gillen comes in singing bluesy stuff that sounds exactly like Robert Plant, but he does do it really well. There's a few references to 80s metal. You've got this kind of guitar bit that's a bit 80s. Look, it's not bad at all. It's delivered with real energy and dynamics, but it is pretty trite. Like in 1989, even this had been done a lot. This is where they're doing the thing which you've said they did more than I said they did, where they're just kind of resorting to, you know, um, blue hard rock riff number 43. You know, um, it goes into an acoustic guitar section with a bit Led Zepp free, which is changes gear. That's cool continues in that vein, gets a bit dreamy and psychedelic with acoustic and electric guitars. Then it kicks back in with the heavy riffs again. The solo is very 80s, but really inventive and cool. Some strange odd bends and weird harmonies, but they're great. There's a harmonized version of the riff towards the end. Then some more Led Zeppelin free acoustic guitar, and it winds down with the acoustic guitar, actually, and finishes on that. Um, it's not a bad track at all, but it is one of the more... Like, 
the hard rock sections are generic. There's some other bits to it which are cool, but when it's in hard rock mode, it's like, yeah, this is kind of hard rock by numbers at this point. Um, yeah. I was hoping you talking about this track would remind me of it, but no, I guess it, it did. It did not, not even a little bit. I have no recollection of this. I was cooking bacon and potatoes at the time, but mm -hmm. still, I, I got nothing. I mean, nothing. So I can see why it was left off the album just for that one reason alone. Yeah, but, I would say it's probably not as good a closer as the previous uh, tracks. I, I think so. Seasons might be the best song on the album. I know I said that earlier, but I really like that one. You know, and the thing about this album is, in this is something I have said about 50 times, and I'm going to try to come up with a new way of saying it, because the, the idea of this podcast wasn't to pull out all these old records that came and left and, and me to crap on them. It was about un, finding undiscovered gems or bringing back something that people had forgotten. Yes. And one of the very common themes that I've come across on these albums is they didn't take enough time to write them. They didn't mm -hmm. have the right producer to guide them. And that's yeah. what this album is. You know, I would like to see Ray Gillen have sung an octave lower. I right. would like to have seen Jakey Lee write better rhythm parts, which I know he's capable of, because this does not sound like what he did with Ozzy Osbourne. Uh, I would like to see Greg Chase on maybe not twiddle whittle so much. It's 1989. You're a bass player. Knock it off. Um, who's you're a bass player not named Cliff Burton? Knock it off. This isn't a funk <laughs> band, nobody wants to hear it. And but I mean, Eric Singer probably is the MVP of this record for me. He yeah. really brought it, he played perfectly, tastefully, holds everything together in a really cool way. I just wish, and there's a lot of great pieces, but there's not a lot of great finished songs, yeah. As for Spin It or Bin It, I probably got to say Spin It, really, because do I want to hear it again? Yeah, I want to sit down with this one. I want to dig a little bit deeper. It, it made me want to go for a second round. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, well, look, for me, this was, I was pleasantly surprised. There's a lot of these 80s sort of glam metal bands that are called like the Bad Boys or, you know, Whatever it is, bad news, which is the the precursor to. Uh, oh. um, so, do you always play pinball before a gig? <laughs> no, I'm only doing that because you asked me to do it. <laughs> yeah. Exactly, yeah, Vim Fuego. But but anyway, that's one for another time. But but yeah, look, basically, there's a lot of these bands that are basically pretty terrible, and there's nothing really to them at all. And you listen to it, and you think this could be anyone, you know. Um, but actually, I thought this had some character. Now, fair enough, they nicked most of the character, which means stole, by the way, in uh, British slang. They nicked most of the character from Led Zeppelin. But you know what? Wait they a minute, didn't... real quick. Should I point out when I use American slang what it means in English? In English slang? Uh, well, we we probably know that because we watch a lot of American TV shows. Okay, fair, um, fair. Yeah. I'm just asking if you know. Yeah. You know. <laughs> but, um, yeah. but yeah, so. 
I think they do a really good job of ripping off Led Zeppelin and it's far more interesting than most of the trashy glam cheese that was that was passed off as heavy metal at the time. Um, I really, I think some of the guitar work, some of the solos are really inspirational. The vocals, I love them. I think the Robert Plant impression is just great. Um, for me, it's almost like a Coverdale page, a lot of this. It's, it's like not quite Led Zeppelin, but it's, you know what? It sounds enough like Led Zeppelin that I can... Uh, I can get into it. And I kind of think, you know what, if um, Jimmy Page had done some of these tracks on Outrider, then Outrider would have been a better album. Which um, we also did an episode on. Yes, we did. Um, so, yeah, look, it's definitely imperfect. There's some um, totally generic, typical trite nonsense on here. There's some over twiddlies. There's some um, silly faux emotional 80s um, power ballad stuff. Um, but you know what? And, and yeah, and you're right. There's some songs that haven't quite been written properly and they're a bit all over the place. But overall, there's a lot of really, really brilliant moments on this. And it's got real energy, really good dynamics. You're right about Eric Singer. There's some really brilliant drumming on this. Um, so, yeah, look, it's definitely a spin it for me. Um this is like as close as the 80s comes to really good 70s hard rock. And yeah, it takes them borrowing everything from Led Zeppelin to get there, but fine, it'll do. You know what? And I'm never gonna, I'm never gonna complain about somebody stealing from Led Zeppelin. Mm-hmm. For the reason that Led Zeppelin stole from everybody else. Well, yeah, exactly. So at that point, it becomes give a penny, take a penny. Yeah. Do you have those in England? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay, fair enough. But with that, I got nothing else. No, that's me. That's it. That's it. Yeah. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. Please rate, review, tell your friends. See you next week. Bye.